0: few Canadians have inspired the nation quite like Terry Fox. Terry Fox is someone that is almost universally looked up to, admired, um cherished by Canadians from coast to coast even though most of us never met him. Most of us didn't know him personally. Hello, I'm Brian Lilly. This is the Full Comment Podcast. Our next guest is someone who knew Terry Fox very well, worked closely with him on his Marathon of Hope in 1980, and someone who has a new book coming out just ahead of the Terry Fox uh, marathon or run that comes up every September. But before we get to him, I do want to remind you, hit that subscribe button, whatever app or device you're listening to is on, hit that subscribe button. Make sure you don't miss an episode of Full Comment. So what was Terry Fox like? How did he begin his Marathon of Hope? Why did he begin it? And what was it like on the road? Bill Viggers is the author of Terry and Me, the inside story of Terry Fox's Marathon of Hope. Comes out in paperback on August 29th. Make sure you look out for it, order it online, or pick it up at a local bookstore, even better yet. Bill joins me now. Bill, thanks for the time today.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you for having me here. Um.
0: Are you, all these years later, are you surprised that uh, Terry Fox still inspires so many people straight across the country?
1: No, not really. I I think his message is going to resonate today as strong as it did 43 years ago, and I I can see it going on forever, at least I hope it goes on forever, because he set such an an example for people. Um, His... Journey was, uh, I don't know how he did it, I, I, and I think that a lot of people look back on it and how did somebody possibly do that in one leg, and he exemplifies so many good traits in the human beings that I think we all admire and and I think aspire to.
0: So you weren't with him at the very beginning of the Marathon of Hope. You later joined and and helped organize things, but before we get to what it was like and, and where you joined them. Tell me Terry's story. There's a whole generation, too of Canadians who weren't alive then who have no memory of this. They've definitely heard of Terry Fox and school and media and so on, but how did he end up where he was in, in terms of um, being so dedicated to raising money for cancer? Obviously he dealt with it himself, but how did he end up where he was to the point of saying, I'm going to run across Canada.
1: As a youngster, he was always uh, an athlete, soccer, basketball. When he was 17, um, he was in a minor car accident and injured his knee. And shortly thereafter, he started having some pain in that knee, and he just worked through it. And it went on for months until um, uh, he would have been 18 when he the, became the pain in his knee became just too much and they, he went to see a doctor on that very first visit to a doctor that was x-rayed and almost immediately not almost immediate, immediately diagnosed that he had osteosarcoma which is cancer of the bone in, in his knee and within 48 hours, he had the lower part of his knee just be just about except actually actually was just above the knee amputated. Um, In the book, there is a letter written by Terry. In January of 1980, before he starts his run to his nurse, the nurse is Judith Ray, who dealt with him in the hospital and the family. And the night before he had his operation, she gave him this peps talk about, don't let this ruin your life. Make something out of it, do something to make a change. And also that night, his coach came in with a uh, article in a magazine saying, there's this gentleman who ran in the New York marathon with one leg. And Terry said immediately, well, if that old fart can do that i can do it too (laughs) and within uh, very shortly after getting out of the hospital he was walking around by the way in the hospital the nurse talks about how much how caring he was to the other people and by the way they put him in the kids ward Uh, the doctor said i don't want to put him in the old in the in the uh, the with the adults, and the nurse said that's a really good idea because they were mostly there with broken bones from falls. So he was in with a bunch they of They would kids. have been
0: seniors. He he may have been a senior kid. Yes. But the, yes. The, in the adult section, he would have been with people with, well, close yes. to your age now well, perhaps.
1: I, no, my age. <laughs> <laughs> so right from the beginning, also the other thing I have to say, and he said this often to me and in, in, in public, he said before I had this cancer, He said, I was pretty self-centered. I only worried about myself. I only worried about sports. And that operation and that inspiration that was given to him by Judith Ray changed him. And in the letter to Judith, he talks about how he's going to do this run, how he, one of the things he ran 3,000 miles. By the way, back then we worked in miles. He ran 3,000 miles before he started the run. Um, And in his speeches, he would say dreams can come true if you want them to. What he often did not add, but he meant was if you do a lot of work. And that was the beginning of the journey for him.
0: So... How did the idea of running across the country come to him then? I mean, he got this inspiration from the nurse, Judith Ray. Um, there's a, a big leap between that and saying, I'm going to fly to Newfoundland and run back to my home in Vancouver.
1: Well, immediately he tells, when he tells his mother that he's going to run across Canada, because in, in his mind, people got cancer everywhere, not just in British Columbia. Mother says, why don't you just run across BC? And that was his answer. He said, because people get cancer everywhere and I have to spread the message. And from the beginning, it was solely to raise money for research. At one point I had a little chat with him on the road about you want to put some of your money into education. And he was emphatic that all, everything that he would raise would go to find a cure for for the for the disease as he said there has to be a better way and he and he saw the treatment that people were going through and by the way the type of cancer he has had you now have an 80 percent chance of survival and in most cases you don't they do not have to do an amputation so from the beginning uh, he was inspired to do that run across canada he was not satisfied for just running across bc
0: when the Marathon of Hope started in April 1980, though, it did not generate the kind of publicity that it later did. Um, how did it change?
1: At the beginning, it was just him and Doug in that van, And they started off from, uh, from St. John's. And in Port-au-Basque, um, there was a town of 8,000 people at the time, and they raised $8,000. That's when he got the idea of $1 from every Canadian. By the time he got to Nova Scotia, he was getting discouraged because his message was not getting out. And, and people today are still doing that. And what they don't understand is if you don't have a way to get your message out to the people, you, you end up running an anonymity. and, mm-hmm. and, what happened was the first time I talked to him, it was in Sheet Harbor, Nova Scotia. By the way, at the beginning, I want to make clear, this is long before cell phones and uh, and the internet. <laughs> so how we communicated back then was by pay phones. So he would call collect. And the very first time I talked to him, I could tell how discouraged he was. And uh,
0: hey, and you'd met him before the run started, correct? No, no.
1: I, oh, okay. No, what happened was is, he had was just about to start the run uh i would i had just been hired by the cancer society quite frankly i had been in a down and out stage of my life um, selling life insurance which is a wonderful product that most people have but i was not a salesman and should have never been doing that (laughs) and uh, but i'd always been a volunteer with the cancer society and i applied for one job with it i didn't get it it's in the book it's an interesting story Uh, But then I applied for the job as the director of communications and fundraising at the Ontario Division. And the day before he was to start, my boss, a gentleman by the name of Harry Rollins, came to my desk and said, there's a kid with one leg going to run across Canada. Do you want to go and see what you can do for him? So initially, I just followed him um, in the Toronto Star uh, Leslie Scrivener was writing about him once a week in section four, probably page eight. And that was the, basically the amount of press he was getting. And so when I talked to him that first time, I said, when you get to Ontario, what do you want to do? And he said, well, I'd like to meet Bobby Orr. I want to meet Bo- Daryl Sittler. I want to go to Jays <laughs> game. I want to meet Trudeau and I want to go to the CN tower. And of course, I just moved from Welland, Ontario, and I'm sitting at the other end of the line just to move to the big city. And I'm thinking, I don't know. If, OK, well, I said, call me back tomorrow and I'll see what I can do. And the worst thing that anybody can say to you is no. So I just got on the phone. And by the time he was able to call me back the next day, I was able to say, OK, the CN Tower is on, the Blue Jays are on. Uh, Sittler's going to meet you. Bobby Orr is going to be in Europe but we'll find him someplace on the road. He'll find us and I can't find Trudeau um, who was in Europe at the time and when we did meet him was not even briefed about him but that's another story. It turned out okay. Um, so right away I wanted to give him hope you know that things were going to happen. Then I flew down, met him in Edmundston, New Brunswick That's when I found out who he was. I was actually sent down to lay down the law uh, because he wasn't showing up for his medical uh, treatments or exam, not treatments, just the exams that he had promised to do Well, mom and dad had already been there to talk to him and he, he was, he was, I'm not going to stop running to go get exams. I said, I know my body. If I need something, I'll go to a doctor. So when I get there, I get to meet him. I, I meet him the first morning. I am in absolute awe. I like everybody else. I'm watching the response of the people on the side of the road. Uh, there's nobody there. Uh, there's every time a home hardware truck passed them, they would honk. So somehow somebody back in Ontario knew about him. But other than that, there was no coverage. There was very like a little bit of press here, a little bit of press there. And I saw how he affected people. I saw when he spoke. That it was complete silence in the crowd. He spoke from the heart. He was for real. He was just a regular kid, um, a wonderful sense of humor. And I knew that if he got into a populated area, it would take off. So when I left him at the Quebec border, I already knew nothing was going to ha- happen there. And I said, just get through Quebec. I said, Get to Ontario, and we'll we'll, we'll make it happen. And uh, then I went back to Ontario, and I drove back and forth between Toronto, and um, went to all those little towns, Caladar, Marmora. And I would go to the women's institute. I would drive into town to the gas station and ask who in town is the you know event organizer, and they go, Oh, see Martha down the road. And <laughs> I'd, go, I'd go and talk to them, and or the Lions Club president, and I'd say, There's, a, I have two Polaroid pictures of them. And that's all I had. And I said, this guy's running across Canada with one leg. Would you do something for him when he comes to your town? And they all said the same thing. Well, if he makes it this far, we'll do something. And I said, he'll be here. And as a matter of fact, he and I had sat down with a map of New Brunswick because he was running 25 miles a day. I was able to go 25, 25, 25. So I was able to tell these people that, OK, he's going to be here on July the 13th, as an example. And by the, by the way, by the time we got to Sault Ste. Marie, we were only two days behind that schedule. And so, let,
0: let, let, can I just stop you for a second, Yes. Bill? Um, you said earlier that this was done in the days before cell phones, um, before the internet. And, and so, you're doing this with pay phones, you're flying and driving to meet them, uh, you're mapping it out with just a map and math. I don't think most people could do that today.
1: Well, it was there was no rules. You, you, you flew by the seat of your pants. Uh, Ken McQueen, who wrote for McLean's magazine, uh, interviewed Terry and uh, us in Ottawa and then came and joined us for a few days up near Sudbury. And he says, and when he wrote, he said, I was expecting it to have changed into this uh, organization. And he said they were still just like a bunch of bands of gypsies flying by the seat of their pants. And and uh, that's how the run was. You couldn't plan the day to day run um, because it could change in a moment. He could come to me and say, "Okay, I'm supposed to run 12 miles, but I got to take a break now. So how we communicated back then was radio. Radio was king in 1980. Um, by the time we got to Ontario, you know, the radio cruisers would join us. So when he had to stop early, I would go over to the radio station guys and say, okay, he's got to take uh, take a, two hours off. He'll be back on the road. So they would immediately broadcast what Terry's schedule. And that was how we communicated. There was, as I say, you, you couldn't do it. You know, today it would have been easy back then, yeah, it, and, but it worked.
0: You you didn't get a lot of publicity in Quebec by the sounds of it. Um no. No. So when did it pick up?
1: The moment he crossed the Ontario border. Um, Now, there is a lot of politics within the Cancer Society, and a lot of it was based on personalities. So I get a call from the gentleman who was doing the documentary when Terry's in Montreal or in Quebec City, Sunday night. I always seem to get the calls on Sunday nights. (laughs) And he says um, they've run out of money. They all have colds. They haven't had a shower in a week. I put them up in a motel. If this thing doesn't, if you don't do something now, the run's not going to make it to Ontario. So I once again went to Mr. Rollins and he called in a bunch of volunteers and we called in volunteers from all across the province. And we had a meeting in the old Westbury Hotel basement and I'm sitting there with my suitcase and uh, this is to decide whether we are going to uh, get behind Terry Fox. And this is the ontario division the hamilton and the toronto districts did not want anything to do with them because really they, they said they didn't have the volunteers um and i tried to explain to them we don't need volunteers it, it's 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 a it's a, a movement unto itself that just happens but even up to the at the end of that vote uh, toronto was still not in by the way when we got to uh toronto Uh, I got a letter from them, which I still have all the papers, inviting me, please join us for uh, Terry's uh, arrival in Toronto. And I thought to write back to him, sorry, I can't make it that day. I'm busy. Um, (laughs) Because there was a complete disassociation from the national office to what was happening on the road. Um, So
0: he crosses the Ontario-Quebec border. And I'm guessing at that point, media in Ottawa both – local media in Ottawa, but also the Parliamentary Press Gallery and people that wrote for national publications probably started cluing in around then.
1: It was slow. Um, he came across the border to Hawkesbury uh, to greet him. And, oh, by the way, what's, what what happened was a, court, a bunch of volunteers of the Cancer Society, some of them immediately said, this guy is different, we're going to do it. So some of them went way out of their way. One of them was a gentleman by the name of Terry Christopher, who's still around, who became the uh, officer of the Black Rod in the Senate. And after that meeting in Toronto, him, he and the district director drove, were driving back to Ottawa going, we're on our own. Uh, You know, if nothing's gonna happen, if we don't do it. So what happened is those two gentlemen and a couple of other people put together that greeting in Hawkesbury. And the turning point in my, Mine was, as we ran into Ottawa, we ran into Spark Street Mall, and it was, it was lunchtime, it was naturally jammed, but it was the biggest crowd that Terry had run into. And my plan was, I, I said to him, I had him take a day off in Montreal, so we arrived in July the 1st, because uh, my plan was to try and get him on the Canada Day celebrations at Parliament Hill. But that morning we were approached by the PR person gentleman by the name of Richard Getz, asked Terry to kick off at the football game. So I went to Terry and said, look, I was going to take you to Parliament Hill. Nothing's guaranteed. These guys want you to do the kickoff. He said, I'd rather go to a football game. Mm -hmm. And we go to the football game. He's practicing downstairs, kicking the ball. He's afraid he's going to shank it or he's going to fall down. And then they said the time is ready. And as we're walking out on the field, I'm thinking to myself, I hope they know who he is. And the announcer just said, ladies and gentlemen, and he wasn't at the, he was just getting to the sidelines and he never get the words Terry Fox out. And the place started this unending standing ovation that went on and on and on. And then at center field, Jerry Organ um, and Tony Gabriel are talking to him. And uh, one of them says, we were in the dressing room the team and we cannot believe what you're doing oh you're running a marathon a day on one leg we're professional athletes and we could never ever do that and for Terry that meant the world and they were recognizing what he was doing as an athletic feat and that meant so much to him
0: so you said earlier he was very athletic very into sports and you've got two of the biggest star athletes in Canada at the time, you know, CFL was a lot bigger back then and Tony Gabriel standing there complimenting you that must've just sent him over the moon.
1: Yeah. And one of the other things I remember is standing behind them on both teams are three giant linebackers, six altogether. And every one of them, there's tears running down their face. And I will never forget that moment. And then every athlete we met after that said the same thing. Daryl Sittler, Bobby Orr, uh, Gretzky, all of them became friends of Terry's. And all of them said to him, uh, you know, this basically the same thing. And, you know, at the end of the run, you know, there were schools being named after him and streets. And all of them, he was very honored. But the only one he ever really got excited about, he called me in December. And he was just over the moon because he had just been named the uh, the Canadian Athlete of the Year. And to him, that meant more than anything else. Wow. He didn't. He was never, ever, ever comfortable being considered a hero.
0: I want to ask you about the, the big reception in Toronto and then where things went from there. Uh, but before I do, uh, Trudeau, you said you just bumped into him somewhere and he, he wasn't briefed. Was that on his, his visit through Ottawa or...?
1: Yes, it was actually a plan. We, you know, we had set it up with his office, actually. Um, um, Mr. Christopher that I spoke about earlier had arranged it, and he had been overseas, and he apparently in the house that day, he had taken a, a beating, and he came out, and um, obviously he had not been briefed. He didn't know who Terry was, didn't know what he was doing, didn't know what direction he was <laughs> running. And my kids at the time were eight and nine years old, and their pictures are in a lot of the books over the years. And they were squatted down in front of Terry. And at one point, Ter- Trudeau looks down at them and says, uh, "Said who are you? Well, these two kids, eight and nine, jump up and completely take over the conversation with Trudeau and start telling Terry or talk to uh, Pierre where he's going, what he's doing, where they've been. Um, and they don't. And it, basically, they save the day. Um, and, and Terry wanted Trudeau to run with him, which he didn't, but Terry always took the high road. He said in his book, he, in his, in his uh, diary, he said he was a very nice man. I wish he had a run with me, but, you know, he's very busy.
0: All right. Uh, we, we've got to take a, a break, Bill. I'm loving the conversation, but we've got to take a break, and when we come back, I'll ask you about Toronto, the end of the run, and then the legacy. More of that when we come back. So, Bill, I'm... <laughs> Part of what I'm getting uh, from from talking to you is that my memory, such as it is, of of Terry Fox and the Run, uh, is better than I thought, because uh, my my I, I was young at the time. I would have been not quite ten years old, but they started talking to us about Terry Fox in school, and my memory seemed to be that it hadn't been that uh, big groundswell all across the country, but it grew as the run progressed, and toronto had to have been one of the high points for getting the word out even though the toronto you know branch of the cancer society wanted nothing to do with it you had more than ten thousand people out at nathan phillips square and daryl sittler running with them
1: when i came back from new brunswick the next morning i'm driving down to the office the office was at blue and young and i used to listen to a gentleman by the name of jeremy brown who was um, at a five-minute piece on uh, CKFM with Don Daynard, and it was about the entertainment business, and he was always very funny. But that morning, he talked about Terry Fox, and he wasn't being funny. And his wife had read Leslie's column and said, "I think you have to read this column, and I think you have to do something." So he went on the air that morning, and he said, "I'm going to get I'm going to get behind Terry Fox." and I'm going to get the station behind him, and and I'm coming down the Rosedale Valley Road, and instead of driving to my office, I drive up to the studio, buzz the back door. He comes down. We have coffee. I show him the two Polaroid pictures. I tell him all about Terry, and he said, can you come back at four o'clock this afternoon? I went back and forward to the station, and he had um, all of the management from the station. He had a gentleman by the name of Quentin Wall who owned Cadet Cleaners, Jackie Creed from the Creed family, um, the owner of Pizza Pizza. I did my talk about Terry and at the end of the meeting, they said, we'll take care of Toronto, you take care of Ontario. So up until we're running down University Ave, I had no idea what was happening. All I knew is we left the Four Seasons Hotel and as we went down University Ave, on either side of the street is lined with people uh, in all the doorways and the windows you're looking up. And it it, it was, it it was, it was the shock. Isn't the right word. You were just full of holy mackerel. I can't believe this. And we made that turn at Queen and University Ave and um, Doug is driving. Doug was his very best friend and you, you, there's no place to park, and the people are out onto the, the street, and he yells at me, what do I do, what do I do with the truck? And I said, just pull it up on the sidewalk. And he said, I can't. And the, I said, we're with Terry, we can do anything we want, and at which point the cop, at him. <laughs> he, cop yells at him, put it there, put it there. So we walk, he's trying to make his way through the crowd. And um, what happened was, is people were trying to hand him flowers and, and gifts and trying to touch him and shake his hand. And the police were trying to make it their way through And in Scarborough. There is a big crowd there. And at one point, the police started pushing people and Terry grabbed me by the arm. and went, no, 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 no. Tell them it's okay. It's okay. Uh, and this, so by this time, the police are being very gentle with the people. And what happens is I turn around and start walking backwards and they're handing him stuff. And I'm there, then Terry's handing it to me and then I'm handing it off to people on either side of me. And this woman steps in in front of me and she's got cameras all over herself. So I know she's on assignment But she trips and falls backwards and I catch her before she hits the ground. I throw her up and I said, keep, keep going. And it turned out to be Gail Harvey. So most of the images that you see of Terry Fox, and she came up and joined us in French river at the French river trading post, Gail shot, but the crowd, they estimated at 10,000 people. It was all the way back, as far as you can, in every direction, they were on the walkways, they were all around. And uh, with that many people on the ground, when Terry starts talking, all you can hear isn't way in the background is the traffic. There is not a sound from the crowd. And it was like that almost every every time he spoke because he spoke for the heart. There was no speechwriters for Terry. Uh, He, spoke when he, what he believed in and when he spoke he moved people with his message and uh, that was that that was the blast off and after that by the way when I had first met him in New Brunswick I said for this thing to take off whether we you have to we have to make a splash in Ottawa and we have to make it big in Toronto because that's where the national media was it it
0: lit the fuse that made the rest of the country sit up and pay real attention
1: it did the message got out um london ontario saint thomas is my hometown but london ontario was the next biggest crowd we ran into and after that everywhere for the rest of the run um Everywhere we went, even out in the country, there was people lining the road. We, we put, you know, you get to a town, Brantford, you know, you know, Woodstock, Kitchener, all that route, and then up to Barry and Gravenhurst. Uh, if there was a town of 5,000 people, 10,000 people showed up. Um, and the, the response in every community was incredible. And the support that we got, too, by the way. We, we very rarely paid for a dinner and very rarely did we have to pay for a motel room, too. Um, and you
0: mentioned leaving the Four Seasons. There was, I mean, there weren't a lot of Four Seasons across the country, but there was a connection to Isidore Sharp, the founder of the the hotel chain, Mr. Right?
1: Mr. Sharp had a son who's Terry's age, who, who had just passed away before Terry started his run from the same type of cancer. And when he was in Quebec, he he pledged, First off, he said, "I'm going to put you up in wherever there, we have a hotel. You're going to stay there." Um, in Montreal, as an example, the night before, we stayed in a, a, a convent and little tiny rooms like cells with a cot and a desk. And the next day, we all have our own suites at the Four Seasons in Montreal, and they were <laughs> we got our we got our T-shirts and uh, uh, shorts back uh, hangers, starched. <laughs> <laughs> Which, and then he, he pledged $2 for every mile that Terry ran, and he challenged 1,000 companies in Canada to join him. And he has been a staunch supporter of the Terry Fox. He was the originator of the Terry Fox Foundation, working with mom and dad. And uh, he's been the chairman of the board. He's now retired for all of these years and from the beginning, uh, Mr. Sharp was number one supporter of Terry Fox.
0: It's, um, it, it, it's just an amazing uh, story, the, the legacy that's gone on. But I don't want to leave his time in, in Toronto yet. I don't want to make it all about Toronto. But as you said, 10,000 people. But you mentioned Tony Gabriel. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, I forget the other gentleman's name in Ottawa.
1: Jerry Organ. Jerry and by, Oregon, yes. by the way, Terry, uh, uh, Jerry, uh, Tony Gabriel is still involved in the Burlington, uh, annual run. He's uh, w- one of their organizers.
0: So they both had an impact on Terry. What was it like from meeting least, you know, legend Daryl Sittler when he arrives?
1: Uh, I tried to pull a trick on him. He didn't fall for it. I went to Daryl or to Terry, uh, you know, eleven thirty, and said, I, "I just got a call from uh, Daryl. He can't make it." And uh, meanwhile, he was in the room next to us changing. And uh, anyway, he walks into the room. And now he's he's changed into his shirt and shoes, and he goes, opens the door, and just the Terry and goes, "Okay, who wants to go for a run?" <laughs> uh, and then. Uh, And by the way, Daryl stayed in touch with Terry all through his illness, as did Orr, as did Gretzky, um, as did a lot of those sports people, stayed in touch with him. The NHL Players Association offered to finish his run, and Terry Terry said, no, nobody's going to finish my run. Um, And then Bobby Orr, uh, Terry was a big Boston fan. And then meeting Orr was a big thrill. Uh, we actually came back and, and Terry spoke to a bunch of business leaders at the Four Seasons. And, and then we had uh, uh, dinner with Orr, just the five of us. And uh, when Bobby goes to the washroom, uh, Terry starts picking the croutons off of uh, his salad going, I'm gonna tell my grandkids that I ate Bobby Orr's croutons. So, <laughs> by, the, by the way, uh, I have to tell you that when I have a chance, Terry had an incredible sense of humor. Very dry, uh, quick, quick thinker. When he, we thought he had uh, broken his ankle up in Sault Ste. Marie, it it turned out it wasn't. Uh, By the time he's walking out of the hospital, uh, uh, some media had gathered out front and a bunch of uh, reporters standing there. And one of them yells to Terry, Terry, which one of your ankles is bothering you? And without missing a beat, he looks at the guy and he says, the one I don't have. Uh, and so there was a couple, a couple of you, times like that, too.
0: So I remember him coming to, to Hamilton and to Dundas, and then you've described all these towns that he went to in London and Brantford. And that is not a direct route across Canada. I mean, a, a direct route would have been coming across at Hawkesbury, at the Ontario-Quebec border, and running Highway 17 and 60 up to Thunder Bay. But he, he, he zigzagged all over. and.
1: With, it, when he was planning out his run, he he met with a gentleman by the name of Ron Calhoun, who's no longer with us, but Ron was the uh, volunteer chairman for National. And it was actually Ron who coined the phrase Marathon of Hope. And Terry sat down with him with a map. And I don't know whether it was Ron's idea or Terry's idea, but was to run to London. So when I met Terry out in New Brunswick, we're sitting deciding the route and he points to Windsor and Niagara Falls and Terry says to me well I want to run there and I want to run there too and I have to explain to him that the when you're holding a map of BC and you're holding a map of Ontario the scale is not the same <laughs> so I had to explain well okay there's three days down and of course he would not backtrack yeah. at one point I said okay you run to London why don't we drive back to Toronto and head north from there and he said no I don't want anybody to ever say that I did not run every single step of the way so I had to explain to them that you're going to add 10 days to your run when do you want to get home and he that's when it clued onto him was the scale wasn't the same and um, I think it's I don't know what people, I was going to say everybody know No, people don't know. At the end of every day, we would hide a bag at the side of the road covered with gravel. If that wasn't possible, he'd go over and touch a telephone post, a fire hydrant or something. The next morning, Doug, his driver, had to pull the van up so when he opened the door, he could step out onto the bag. Or if he couldn't do that, he'd go over and touch the pole that he touched the night before. Again, there were no shortcuts for Terry. Terry. Um, he ran every single step of the way, all the way. He was—he had very high ideals and morals.
0: Thunder Bay, what what was it like in Thunder Bay when the decision was made? He couldn't go on. Did did he make the decision, or did he have to be convinced?
1: No. He, he uh, first off, I talked—I talked about not going to medicals, and he said, "I'll know my body when it has to go." Um, that last day. Um, by mile 18 he he said to Doug I have to go to the hospital so he knew what was happening Um, when uh, I was actually at my parents 40th wedding anniversary and didn't get back the next morning until I arrived at the same time as mom and dad had arrived from BC and we all went to the hospital and Mom and dad went into the room first and then after me and Terry looked at me and told me, you know, I got the cancer. I got to go home. So I went into. Actually, my first three words were words that I can't repeat. I'm not very proud of. They, they, I swore three times like I was I was. Oh, no, 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 Understandable. No, no, no. And then I went into automatic mode. And uh, there's another gentleman, district director, Lou Fine. I have to mention his name and tell that story. We go into automatic mode. We have to, okay, now we got to get you home because the doctor said he has to be on a plane. He's got to go home today and he has to go home laying down so he can't take a commercial flight. So I immediately try and organize, well, I organize flights for Doug and Daryl, his brother and his friend to get home. Um, they leave immediately. And then I have to organize that press conference. And um, I had a friend who worked for the TV station that I had known from another world and he gave me all the all the he said here's here's all the contacts everybody right here and he says as a matter of fact I'll make the calls for you and they called held that press conference meanwhile we're trying to find a flight home for him so we're trying the Toronto Star we're trying you know private companies Uh, we you know we can get him as far as Winnipeg and then finally we talked to uh, uh, OHIP and uh, uh, it was very funny because Lou's on the phone with this person and explaining we need a flight and we need you to fly up and pick them up and fly them home. And it starts going up the line of you know authority and finally gets to the top person who says, we can't possibly do that. And Lou goes, I've got all the media outside the door of Canada. Do you want me to go out there right now and tell them the government of Ontario will not fly Terry Fox home? One moment, please. <laughs> 30 seconds later, they come back on and go, there'll be a plane there in an hour and a half.
0: So you basically embarrass the, uh, the head of Ontario's health system, OHEP, uh, into getting you a plane uh, by saying, look, I, I, either uh, you give us a plane to fly Terry home, or we're going to uh, go tell all the media. They give you the plane. What happens there?
1: The, n- the next thing, we're, we're, we load into the uh, ambulance, and, and in the ambulance is mom and dad and myself, uh, a, a doctor from Thunder Bay and Christy Blatchford, who's from the Toronto Star, um, who had already visited us once before and had a relationship with Terry. And as we're driving to the airport, needless to say, mom and dad are very upset. And, and dad starts going, this is so unfair. This is so unfair. And Terry says, what do you mean, dad? And he said, the, the cancer, the cancer coming back. And he said, no, it isn't that. He said, I'm no different than anybody else. He said, this is what cancer is all about. And then there was a long pause. And then he says, maybe now people will understand more why I did it. And what he felt was that people had put him up on this pedestal of of being a hero. And that for him, it was all about cancer and finding a cure And he realized that because of the visibility he had become, that people were now going to follow his treatment and his journey, which is chemotherapy and and radiation,
0: which is horrible.
1: Which is horrible, and he, uh, which is he's that's what motivated him in the run in the first place, watching little kids dealing with cancer. So he realized that people were now going to understand more about why he did it. We get to the airport and uh, we unload him and uh, we get him in the plane and I hug mom and dad and I, I go over and I hug Terry and I let, told him I loved him. And then the door closed and uh, the plane taxis. And I remember standing there thinking, this isn't the way the movie supposed to end. And, uh, and somebody calls me, taps me, in and says, "You, you wanted in, in the in the inside." And I pick up the phone, and I'm doing an interview as it happens, and I cried through most of it. And then the next day, I have to unload the vans. And uh, the only thing, I think the only save of my sanity that week was when I got back to Toronto the next day. Uh, I got called over to the CTV headquarters, and they were going to put together the telethon. And they, they asked me to help them, tell them who Terry was. Um, so I sat there and they go, who, who did he like as a musician? And I'd say, well, John Denver, uh, you know, like country music. And they'd get, get John Denver in the telephone. So I sat there and watched the, that telethon come together. And at the end of the day, um, the producer turned to me and said, where are you going to be Sunday? And I said, I guess home watching it. And he said, do you want to go to? be with terry and they flew me out and uh terry and i watched the telethon together in his hospital room and um they rolled in the uh the, the, the drugs and uh plugged them up or hooked him up and he started his first chemo treatment when i was sitting there and he fell asleep on my shoulder
0: 10 million dollars raised in that
1: uh yeah telethon yeah. And by the time he paid, passed away he reached the 24 million that was the population of Canada at that time. So before he passed away, um, he reached his goal, and he said a couple of times in interviews, uh, "I'm I'm going to die happy because I I did the best I can, and that's all you can do."
0: the The annual Terry Fox Run, which is coming up, um, I remember it starting when i was in high school i don't know where, when it started you can fill me in on that but by the time i was in high school it seemed that every school had a terry fox run it, um my kids were in terry fox runs in ottawa um they they they're across canada and i believe in various parts of the world so how did that all start izzy
1: sharp once again four seasons he sends a letter to terry three or four days after Terry finishes his run and he said, I'm going to organize an annual run until we find a cure. So the first run was in 81. And the first run in Ottawa, by the way, there was 10,000 people. I was there for it. Um, and I credit the school system and the teachers for keeping Terry's legacy alive, of using Terry as an example of community involvement, um, of selflessness, of contributing, of being kind. Um, and then they can use them in so many different ways science and, and geography. And um, the, the, the run spread around the road. My, my son, who's now 51, teaches in China. And a few years ago, I went to visit him and he was sick and he was supposed to go to the run in Guangzhou with his students. So I said, Dad, you have to go with him. So I get on the bullet train with 116 or 116 year olds. Just like anywhere in Canada, they're running around the hotel to five o'clock in the morning and have to get up at seven for a run. And we go to the high end golf uh, course in Guangzhou. And I've nothing. No, once again, no idea what to expect. And for about a mile, there's buses and buses and buses. And, but they let us off and we go and uh, the it's on a driving range is where it's going to start. And we're on the second level. And the governor of the province is there. The mayor. Uh, business executives, politicians, and I'm up there and I'm looking out at 8,000 Chinese kids wearing the same Terry Fox shirt that was in Canada that year, except in Chinese writing. And I thought to myself, Terry would never believe what his legacy became, that it spread around the world. And at one point there was 64 64 runs around the world. I don't know how many there are. A lot of them are initiated by the Canadian Armed Forces, expats. Um, There's new, actually just new runs now in New Zealand and Australia. And the one in England, which there's now three, and they keep getting bigger. Um, And then the school runs every year. The school runs, you know, kids learn about Terry. And that's another thing I hope about the, the, the book that people will learn more about Terry, the person, um, and that he was, you know, he said it himself, but it is true. Dreams do come true. You can do anything you want if you work hard. You know, you can have dreams, but if you're not going to put the effort in to get them, you know, it's like any, well, you're not going to be there.
0: Well, from $24 million, to $850 million. More than $850 million has been raised by the Terry Fox run and the foundation over the years, and that's just going to keep climbing. And for people that think, well, cancer's still with us, um, you mentioned that the cancer Terry had, there's now a strong survival rate.
1: There's many types of cancer. Cancer's not just one disease. And, mm-hmm. and there's so many of them that they've made massive advances in. Um prostate cancer, breast cancer is an example. They're, the, the money that the, each year, they do different things. They got the, the, the foundation. The money is raised by the foundation, but then it goes to the Terry Fox Research Institute, which is the medical arm, and they dole the money off to researchers, and they are connected with researchers all around the world. Um, one of the things they're working on right now is a very rare type of childhood brain cancer, um, which right now there is no cure, but that's they put a focus on that one. And then there's a new program where they have connected all of the research projects all across Canada so that everybody is sharing information on what they're doing. Um, and that's Prin- Princess Margaret is part of that. And, and, and all of the major cancer research instit- places across Canada are part of that. And it's all organized by the Terry Fox Research Foundation.
0: Bill Vickers' book is called Terry and Me, the Inside Story of Terry Fox's Marathon of Hope, and it comes out August 29th. Highly recommend it. And Bill, thanks for a, a great chat today and insights into a man that you feel like you know, but of course I never did, and yet you did. So thanks for sharing. Thank you
1: very much. And you, you would like him. If you ever had a chance to meet him, you'd like him. He's a cool guy.
0: I'm sure I would.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music. Listen on your Apple or Alexa-enabled devices and help us out by giving us a rating, leaving a review, and telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.